So now you have me on a podcast saying if I refuse to die, I won't. So if you see a shutdown post like two years from now, you can come back and shame me for it. Um, or maybe I won't because I, I know I said that on this podcast. I feel like it's weird even thinking about the fact there's going to be a lot of people who are AI natives who have never like really lived conscious adult life or pre-adult, I guess. AI is only going to be best fit for automating manual work instead of creative work. It's going to take you all of everybody's jobs and the other people are like, no, it'll just make you better. I guess what's the only real thing that's shifted in the last like year or so is the rise of LLMs. So um, when I think about like what industries that'll impact, like any like really industry with a lot of unstructured data, so like maybe legal or healthcare, but I don't know how much of those are online also. So who knows? Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Feature of Product. Today, my guest is Christina Guo, co-founder at Q. Uh, it's the AI startup that empowers teams to do anything with their data uh, in just an afternoon. Christina, thank you so much for joining me. Would you mind telling everybody a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, really excited to join today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, a little bit about myself. Yeah, like Max said, co-founder of Q. So really excited to be working on sort of solving some of the bigger data challenges that a lot of startups we've been talking to are facing. For that, I was an early stage investor uh, at OnDev, where I was there for a year and a half, joining when they were at seed stage and doing mainly growth and operations there. Um, went to Berkeley, where I was running a startup accelerator. Uh, and so we'd sort of, I think it was like 15, 20 hours a week working with different student-led startups um, every week. And so super cool, just getting exposed to a lot of industries and seeing us like people took on some really big challenges and a lot of them are still working on it full time. So definitely what sort of got me into tech in the first place. Oh, right on. Uh, that's interesting. It's a very interesting path to uh, kind of have experience in the accelerator space and the investment space before actually taking the plunge. Clearly you, you liked what you saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think what really got us into thinking about data in the first place is that it's actually where like most of the answers lie. Like, how do you find product market fit and sort of like manage your team? A lot of that centers around data now. Um, and so it's really like what's underpinning most applications. And so uh, that's pretty much like where we first got into it. But uh, Berkeley's always been like sort of an early space for like a lot of data tools and data innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's mainly the nature of like being in the Bay almost is everyone, I feel like gravitates towards B2B SaaS a little bit. Uh, totally. But yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, what actually like specifically led you to founding Q, right? Because I, I know we were just talking a little bit about how you guys have kind of done some need finding and, and found your place um, in the market recently. But what, what was that initial kind of like kernel that, that led you to, to try it out? Yeah, it's a great question. I feel like people are always surprised because they're like, oh, like you guys were in like data engineers before. And that's definitely true. So my first actual like real job was actually writing about climate risk analytics for this climate risk startup that's now part of Moody's ESG branch, I think it's called. Um, And so that was sort of like my first look into how data has become really valuable. Um, But for us, at least, like we sort of, my co-founder, Kayla, and I worked at companies that were very different sides of the spectrum of how they worked with their data. Um, And so I've worked at places where it's pretty manual, like the company grew very, very fast, but mainly relied on like Mm -hmm. Excel polls and like a lot of automations. I think at one point there were maybe like tens of thousands um, pitting the whole thing up. 
Um, my co-founder set up like warehousing and like a very like technical first approach where like creating external reports for customers was like mainly the engineer's job. And they were doing all this as like a seed stage, almost series A startup. So relatively more sophisticated. Um, but for us, like what we first started looking at was was growth tooling um, and thinking about how most startups have to pick between investing in their data or investing in growth, which is maybe not a trendy thing to say in the age of like mm. everybody data driven. But the reality is like for them, it's so much work relatively and for them to pick between hiring like a salesperson that can close a billion dollars in pipeline so they can raise their next mm-hmm. round or a data hire is actually like maybe like an unsaid thing that we've sort of mm-hmm. realized that a lot of teams are running into, uh, especially founders uh, who are willing to kind of put that aside to just focus on like hiring engineers uh, and hiring salespeople mainly. So that's been really interesting. And then I think for us, like we had we're always surrounded by like a lot of data founders um, in the last couple of years as well. And so much of the tooling is quite complex. Um, there's been so many data tools popping up in the last couple of years. Um, and maybe it was a bit of a naive thing for us to look at it and be like, why is there nothing where we can just plug in our data and get the analytics and reporting and everything we want out of it? Because we're sort of used to that consumer grade software and most other things. Like our startup bank is so modern. Our accounting solution is very modern. Um, and pretty much everything else we use, like I, I use a different browser just because it's like fun and it cleans my tabs up better. Like I think uh, maybe a, we represent more of a discerning user, but I think most software should go towards that where it's like, it should be fun to use. It should be that easy. You should just get what you want. Um, and AI has played a big part of that in cutting down the implementation that previously made that impossible and have people charging thousand dollar implementation fees and, and having you set up things for basically six months or dole out couple grand on a consulting agency. Totally. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and so when we're talking about growth data, right, what specifically are the inputs there? Is that things like, you know, your front end data mixed with CRM, mixed with product analytics? What, what does that actually look like? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's pretty different for different industries, but uh, I guess like for SaaS, what we see a lot is like CRM data, marketing data is all over the place. If you think about ad spend, Marketing has like a ton of different tools or testing a ton of different channels. Um, And then you want to like link marketing sales together, which is very, very hard. Product data. uh, So a lot of people have PLG arms right now and they're trying to figure out how to convert it to sales. And that's a lot of tools have popped up to try and like bring those two data sources together. Uh, And then of course you have, it gets more complex when you think about industries like FinTech uh, or healthcare or even e-commerce, which has so much more data arguably at scale. Um, and so that's sort of like the main, I'd say, things to think about. But I mean, whether it's like 100 different data sources you have to port, support or 500, um, they, depending on what industry, they do generally sort of use the same stack, which is, I think, also maybe surprising to people. But uh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So it's almost like, um, I mean, I think that this is a trend that I'm seeing a lot right now, right? And I, I think AI is a, is a large driver of it is going from these silos of data, um, even within departments, right? So like, I, I think that that's a huge thing um, as kind of a, a you know, couple person marketing team. It, it can be so daunting trying to link all of those things together and get anything usable out of it, right? Uh, it feels like 95% of that time is spent just trying to connect a dashboard to 500 yeah. different tools. Um, so with a background in growth, you were seeing this from people that you were working with, that this issue was kind of a prescient one? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because 
I or I guess on deck was more of like a talent marketplace sort of company. So it was actually really manual. It took a lot of manpower to run, mm. way more than any traditional SaaS company. Um, and we arguably had a lot more data because we were running events and then also like had a number of product arms. Um, and so more than anything else, I think it was difficult to manage and the tools were just not super customizable for that sort of like manpower heavy company. Um, but yeah, uh, more generally, I feel like our, like the generation that's going to come into starting to use and buy software, like we were like playing club penguin and like whatever on the internet relatively early. <laughs> and so you kind of go into it with an expectation of like, uh, it, you know, you're so comfortable with software already, whether that's Instagram or or, um, you know, photo to editing apps. And that's why so many of the like new applications, whatever it is, be real catches on so fast because everyone's so familiar. Um, that mm. sort of person is coming into using software um, and building companies and, and running them and, and working in them. So cool. So, um, all right. I, I love that point that you kind of bring up, right, of this new kind of generation of buyers, right? And I think that that's something that a lot of people miss when they're talking about like new generations of software and how AI can actually make software more accessible for folks, and especially in the B2B space, right? I think it's more common to think about it in the B2C kind of setting. Um, but like you said, I mean, people of, of our generation have kind of come into like running companies, running marketing departments, running growth departments. Like this is just the new reality. Um, how have you seen kind of that digital native adoption changing like software patterns? Is this something that you think a lot of companies are kind of behind the eight ball on? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I feel like I don't want to call out companies that I think are behind the eight ball maybe, but I get what you mean. Um, yeah, I feel like it's weird even thinking about the fact there's going to be a lot of people who are AI natives who have never like really lived conscious adult life or pre-adult, I guess, without AI, which will also be super interesting. But, um, I think the way I think about it is the tools that I see, like sort of the people in the bubble adopting are, are very, very different or, or like, let's say just like early adopters. I saw this crazy tool the other day. It was called wizard.ai, I think. And it's, mm. this is so nerdy, but it like takes your like zoom transcription and splits it into different uh, clips. And what was so magical about it was like, it clicks around like your cursor. So it clicked for like two yeah. straight minutes of like doing everything you would have to do manually to get you that same end result. Uh, so it's, it was like a really magical software experience. Um, and I think, I mean, it's hard to be like super to make something like, I don't know, uh, inbound sales or like something like really like SaaS or like data, like really like uh, magical, I feel like, uh, or just in general, I feel like enterprise software is hard to do because they just, I don't think they're looking for that kind of experience, but for who we're building for, which is like modern growth focused, very efficient startups who are building the same sort of modern experience for their users, they do expect a certain level of like product should be opinionated. It should be very fast. You should get exactly what you want. Um, and you should have like incredible customer service. So I think those are maybe the four pillars. Uh, and a big part of that hinges around opinionation. Like mm. you should tell your user how you think they should use your software the best to get what they want. Um, and I think that's maybe been what's missing in a lot of the data products we've seen where mm. like for most people and we'll hop on calls with like CMOs all the time. And they're like, what are other companies doing? Like, what is the standard here of what metrics we should be tracking? Are we missing anything? 
how are other people approaching this problem? So it's very much like not just a, you know, like only if you're new to the role sort of thing, but also like a general curiosity of how other companies in their industry are tackling certain problems and they want to sort of crowdsource that knowledge, if you will, which I think companies like Canva or or, or Notion or, or Figma or Linear did really well in terms of like being able to have like a really, really opinionated product that tells people how to use it almost. Totally. Yeah, I, um, it kind of leads into another question that I had, which is, so you, you named a few PLG companies there, right? Um, are Do you guys, if you have Emotion, are you considering PLG? Um, and if so, how do you kind of see the evolution of PLG now, right? Because I think there's a lot of contrasting information coming out in both directions about it. Um, a lot of hype, right, in both directions. Uh, yeah. But I do think that PLG is still very viable as a Emotion for new startups. But But where are you guys landing there? Yeah, it's a really timely question because I feel like we went back and forth on this for quite a while. Uh, I mean, it's it's tough because uh, data tools have so much usually like hurdle. So it's like definitely the first batch of people we work with, we need to like, we want to build such a great relationship with and mm -hmm. do as much as we can for them. You can't really do that with PLG. Um, and I think the other piece of it is that you sort of like, uh, I know th there's been a couple of our articles out, I guess, about like how people took different approaches to it. But for yeah. us, at least, I wouldn't want to release anything that isn't like very, very like great experience. And with AI, that's also like another another factor in terms of uh, the sort of quality you need to run a PLG motion. Uh, but it can be great in terms of like, okay, if you're not like already like a VP of engineering or analytics for the last 30 years. PLG is great because your product can speak for itself. Uh, mm. So that can be good. So we'll, we'll have to test it out and get back to you, but it's definitely something we want to do because I think people can prefer it um, for the most part. Totally. Yeah, it's a, it's a careful dance, I feel like with data products, right? Because you are typically selling to people who are um, pretty technically minded in, in a lot of cases, right? But uh, there are a lot of new data products that I'm seeing that are kind of going after that, the rest of the crowd, right? Not just the, the kind of owner of SQL. It's now also everybody who is actually taking in that data, who's requesting that data, right? Um, and that being said, I'd, I'd love to kind of get your perspective on how you see the role of growth kind of changing, right? Because with all of these products, with all of these changes in terms of like org structure and, and the market, um, I think there's a lot of hype around kind of how that role is going to be altered, um, especially with kind of AI technology. Do you, do you have any perspectives there? Uh, I feel like I've talked to like 30 heads of growth in the last couple months, and they all have kind of different role descriptions almost. Mm. Like they really kind of hop on and say they're working on the same thing as the last person said. Uh, I guess the most frequent like overlapping definition has been somebody who's, it seems like a lot of the more PLG companies have a head of growth, for instance, because otherwise, yeah. I guess you'd call it like a head of revenue or something else, maybe. Um, but in terms of how AI is going to change that, or did I butcher your question? Did you did you ask something else? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'll, I'll keep you can keep going if you want. But I think that's a pretty good answer. Yeah. Also, I, I do think that the, the role itself is so um, squishy, right? Like you're, yeah. you're probably spot on there. Um, I don't know that I've talked to another head of growth that has the exact same responsibilities, right? Especially when you're talking about uh, people that are one person growth teams versus multi-person. Um, 
But all of that being said, uh, I would kind of like to touch on the bottoms up layer um, that you guys talk about, because I found it super interesting. Could you just kind of define that real quick? Uh, as in like in product-led growth context or, or something else? So more so in terms of technology strategy, right? This is okay. just from combing your homepage. Got it. Yeah, so I guess the short TLDR of what we do is if you're a startup that has a hot data mess, so either like eight data sources or even just like four and you can't figure out how to answer questions that involve multiple data sources, uh, what do we do if you went with us for, I guess, the whole package instead of like little bits and pieces, which I feel like most people want to do bits and pieces, but that's just the nature of like the data world right now. Um, we would be able to set up a warehouse for you. So essentially the, the goal here is to create a single source of truth for you to unify your data. Um, and traditionally, so setting up a warehouse is not hard for most people to be honest, but it's more so if you like don't want to devote engineering resources to right. set that up, um, run data pipelines, manage that, uh, which most people right now are very focused on, on core product. Uh, and then, so what we do after that is have essentially out of the box metrics for you. So you asked me earlier about what do a lot of businesses have in common? And usually like startups have to custom build all of this. So if we ran a company together, we'd sit down and decide out of our heads, like 30 different metrics we want to track or 50. And then a CMO could come in and they have maybe like 10 more. And if a new CMO comes in, they might switch it up. So it's like very, like people get really creative with it. And I think our maybe like controversial take is that that shouldn't be the case. Uh, we mm. should have like some sort of standardized, like if you're a SaaS business, here's like what you should be looking at. And maybe you can like adjust it a bit from there based on, you know, your FinTech or whatever. Uh, but for the most part, you shouldn't have to start from scratch. So we have these out of the box metrics for you. So we're handling most of the data modeling stuff. And so uh, if you want to get really sophisticated with it and have your data person or engineer sort of tweak it, super easy to do that. Um, but the nice part of having a standardized metric layer or having it very early is you can actually get sort of out of the box analytics for the first time. Uh, so very rarely can you do like, okay, I want pipeline analytics, give me pipeline an analytics in a template and you get all those dashboards built out. But now, cause we have your business context in a sense, um, I'm able to do things like if I just go into my, let's say like KPIs graph, I can, it's already like built out by like segment by industry or I can drill all the way down to like your account level. I can see my product usage of like my biggest accounts. And so all of that previously, you'd have to sort of build out. And it takes, obviously, this is like the last thing most startups want to do. So they're going to put off doing any of this till they're like series A or B, and they can hire a bunch of data engineers to manage it, um, mm. which is why they run in the dark, sort of. Because um, the reality is for most startups, they care about growth more than anything else. And uh, you don't, if you have product market fit, you don't really need a super sophisticated data set setup is the reality because we've talked to so many companies that are series A, series B and like killing it and ARR, but like don't know where their lead sources are coming from, which mm. is unpopular yeah. because people are like, you know, you need data driven growth. But right. for a while, most people couldn't even afford to like, you know, store their data. So right. uh, it's interesting in that sense, but what we're sort of hoping to do is make it so cost efficient and so easy for you to know what's actually going on in your business on every single front without having to take time out of core product or drop like six months of runway, basically. Totally. No, I love that. I mean, it's something that, you know, I've definitely seen it from my experience, right, is 
especially when you are just trying to focus as much as possible on building that core product experience, it is so hard to go to your head of engineering and say, Hey, can you dedicate three days to, to get me, you know, click through rates on, on this landing page or something. Right. Um, that's super interesting. So kind of moving forward from there, um, you mentioned customer facing, uh, analytics earlier, right. Which I think is a pretty powerful concept. Uh, how do you see businesses leveraging this to kind of build stronger relationships going forward? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think in two ways. One, so for an early stage startup, you're just trying to prove your ROI. And you can't really do that without essentially a couple dashboards. Uh, and so you can either uh, sort of meet your user in their workflow, which is in product and build that. Uh, or you can sort of like put in like a deck or something like that if you sell mid-market enterprise, I guess. But uh, yeah. for the most part, I think the value there is, uh, or I guess the challenge is that dashboards aren't usually most, like most of a product's value, whatever product you're selling is just a way to measure it. Uh, and so for most people, they just want to like prove ROI so that there's no churn, their uh, customers are happy, they can like go to their boss and say like, look how much money we're saving or... Uh, look how smart I am for picking this tool, et cetera. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the value there. Uh, but yeah, we were in, I guess most BI tools don't have like embedded external analytics um, just because I'm actually not sure why, uh, but for us, yeah. we just wanted to like meet the startup in whatever like stage of their life cycle was where they need to work with like a bunch of data uh, and actually use it. And for some people, honestly, embedded, like embedding graphs in their product comes way before setting up analytics for themselves. So mm. yeah, that's kind of thinking behind that. It's super interesting. I, I definitely think that you're ahead of the game there, right? Because um, kind of with the changing market conditions and alignment to revenue and everything, especially for like PLG companies, I can only imagine, you know, what it takes to actually get somebody motivated to to push product forward in their work, right? Um, so having that kind of clear ROI is is a huge step forward. Um, I hope that you know you guys are able to get make that kind of like the standard because I, I would love to just get an ROI number from products that I'm pitched daily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a CFO's dream is uh, mm -hmm. to be able to get that number to see what to cut. But yeah, definitely exactly. consolidation is like I feel like what we've heard the most in our comments is like number one, consolidate everything if possible. Uh, we've seen public companies sort of like even like compare a bunch of tools and like do a bunch of pilots just to save like five grand and they're, you know, on, on the stock exchange uh, mm. or like two. I just cannot bother my engineers. I think it's like maybe the second most frequent thing we, we've heard. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. I heard that one quite a bit. <laughs> um, so kind of jumping backwards real quick. Um, I would love to kind of explore a little bit more about your time um, at Cal's accelerator. Uh, what is, you know, and you can take a second to think about it, but what's kind of like your best story from, from that experience? Hmm, interesting. Uh, yeah, that's a really deep question. Um, I feel like maybe two. The first is I feel like you see so much of the reality of like what happens, right? Like there's co-founder breakups. And uh, when I was at school, I never really thought about being a founder either. I think it was more of like a trigger happy moment after I met my co-founder and we were just like really hitting it off. And so um, I just usually try and do whatever is like most interesting generally. Um, mm -hmm. But I think people assume founders either have to be like, have like certain traits or like have like massive risk appetite, but you see 
when you see so many people who ended up being successful in their worst moments, it really reframes like how much do you think you can take? Um, and so that I think was like a big factor. And then the second is I, so we would like work with like an internal team. So it was just a bunch of Cal students running the program. Can't really pinpoint a specific memory, but I feel like that just was also one of the best experiences in terms of like, um, like what can you do like in college to do like set yourself up for success? I feel like it's just picking something you're interested in and putting everything you have into it. You can't really go wrong with that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's other anecdotes that are maybe more interesting, but I feel like maybe shouldn't be on the future product podcast. So. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I think, uh, you raise a really interesting point, which is that a lot of the founders that I've talked to actually, one of the things that unites them is that they are the most interested person in whatever topic they're exploring. Right. Like it's not even so much the, uh, that there's any other unifying factor that I've seen other than, you know, all the standard ones, grit and determination, uh, leadership, but having that kind of core, like kernel of, uh, interest in what you're doing, I do think is such an underrated facet of it. Um, could we go into a little bit more of how you knew that your co-founder was, was the right one? Cause I think that that's something that a lot of people who are, who are looking into entrepreneurship struggle with. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it's, uh, a bit of a unique case because I wasn't really looking for a co-founder. Mm. I was working full-time um, as an investor and he was working on another company. So definitely wasn't like I was like, you know, scouting for, <laughs> for co-founders, which I think is also hard to do. Um, but for me, it was just like, we just vibed really well. And I really enjoyed like growth hacking with him on, on his company. So I was putting in like a lot of time outside of my full-time job working with him voluntarily. Uh, and so when that chapter sort of ended for both of us, it just seemed natural that, I mean, it was like, okay, let's look at how the next three months are going to go. Uh, it wasn't like, I don't think at that point I was like, I'll never recruit again in the next two years, but I still haven't. So, um, yeah, even before we raised money, I mean, we probably spent six, six, nine months working together, seven months. I don't really know before we raised any money, um, which I'm now realizing is uncommon for people. But at that point, I feel like I was just going by vibes, which is not a way I recommend people make decisions. But um, at least for other people, I feel like the best co-founder duos were like at were just like friends first, generally, because um, you have to spend so much time with this person. Uh, and then two, do you really enjoy spending or, you know, actually doing the work? Because you can pick anything to work on, right? Like nothing was like right. binding us to a certain industry. So... I really like Vanta's story too of like um, how the how the founder sort of like found her way to SOC to compliance, which is really interesting. But it also depends like mm. how how much you love like solving or like doing startup stuff, like solving problems and like being able to find customers and serve them versus like you're like gung ho in a certain space. And it's different for everybody. But mm. I think um, yeah, as long as you're you're really 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 into it, uh, definitely helps because when things get hard, you're like. Yep. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Need somebody who's going to be there. Um, you mentioned growth hacking. What's your perspective on this side of growth hacking? Uh, like my position right now? Yeah, so not necessarily. I mean, you're a founder, right? So growth is a component, yeah. but not being specifically with the title growth hacker or, or working in the growth hacking space. Because I, I think it's kind of caught a lot of flack in the last few years. Right, um, yeah. Right, with more traditional marketing. Do you have any kind of perspectives there? Uh, I don't know if I have too many informed perspectives, but for us, I feel like we just uh, 
boil it down to do something creative and you think might work. And if it does work, double down on it, which is not really unique marketing advice at all. Um, but like some things I'm thinking about are like filming TikTok day in my life to put on LinkedIn, which mm. which is definitely going to be, a, you know, a choice. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's like, okay, when I personally watch somebody's life or like another webinar about, you know, who knows what. And it's like, ultimately, like at this early stage, they're betting on you, not necessarily like... Mm the quality of your webinar or your like press materials. So the more you can be like actually honest about what's going on is maybe the more interesting thing. Totally. No, I, I love that. Cause it kind of juxtaposes with the, what you were saying earlier about the product, right? Which is that you want to bring this like as close to perfect as possible experience to people when you're actually going to sell. Right. But when it comes to the marketing, I would agree with you that it's more just about getting things out, trying things, seeing what lands in these kind of early stages and then going from there because you know, too often, I think people put all of their eggs into one basket, they make it absolutely perfect when it comes to the growth strategy. And then their ICP pivots, right? And now all yeah. of a sudden, it's like, oh, I have to start over. Um, so I think you're pretty spot on there. Um, so all that kind of being said, taking a step back and just talking more generally, um, what do you kind of see as the biggest misconception uh, that's floating around regarding AI nowadays? Uh, I feel like maybe two things. The first is that uh, it hallucinates or glitches a lot, and that makes it unreliable. Um, that connects to my second thing, which is that AI is only going to be best fit for automating manual work instead of creative work. Um, and I know people don't want to be like, I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, it's going to take you all of everybody's jobs. And the other people are like, no, it'll just make you better. Um but the reality is, like, I guess what's the only real thing that's shifted in the last, like, year or so is the rise of LLMs. So um, when I think about, like, what industries that'll impact, like, any, like, really industry with a lot of unstructured data is, so, like, maybe legal or healthcare. But I don't know how much of those are online also. So who knows? Um, but I read this really great article by, I think his name is Ben Stansel, who's the co-founder of Mode. Um, and his thinking was along the lines of how... Like for a human data analyst, we give them a lot of room. So it's unlikely the person's going to come in and just know how to calculate or like get to an ARR answer on day one. You have to sort of work with them and give them feedback. And, you know, we're like, that makes sense. It's their first day, their first week. Um, but for AI, it's like they take a shot. And then if it doesn't work, you're like, I'm out. Or maybe you'll, you'll give them like two or three tries, right? Um, and that ends up in product flow too, which is like, how do you make sure you have enough inputs so that not only is the answer accurate, um, but if it isn't, that it's super easy for the user to go in and fix it. Like if you fix it, it's going to undo the whole thing. Is it going to make a result that's like worse than what you already have? So it's like things like that where um, like one, I think it'll be as it's actually arguably better for creative work than automating really manual mindless tasks. Because mm -hmm. um, I think it struggles with math. But like if I were to ask <laughs> to plan my trip, it's like amazing, right? Um, totally. I asked to convert a time zone. It struggled a couple of times. So mm. um, maybe that's like the more interesting piece is that for better or for worse, it is very, very good at creative strategic work when we give it the right input and like forgiveness. Mm, that's super interesting. It, it's kind of this new paradigm of how to treat software, right? Where it's, it's less so uh, a widget to achieve X, Y, or Z. It's more so like a process, right? It's introducing this new process, this new way of kind of coming to that conclusion. Um, so what does the kind of landscape look like? We talked earlier about 
companies who delay, you know, building up the data function because they're so focused on growth, which, you know, is a logical choice. But what is kind of the end game for those companies, right? Like what, what is the uh, scenario look like when you forego investing in your data systems too long? Yeah, um, it's challenging because I feel like like a big paradigm is like, okay, there's a ton of crazy, crazy things in your data. And if you can only find it, you are going to 4X ARR at a fraction of the cost. And it's usually not like that. It's very moderate improvements, which mm-hmm. which makes sense if you're like Glossier or like, um, I don't know, Reddit, because you have yep. so many users and so much revenue that even a tiny optimization is like, your quarters, your quarters, fantastic. But for startups, that's not really the case, right? Uh, and so I think more often what we've seen is like just general like lack of efficiency in terms of like mm-hmm. if your customer success manager doesn't know how people are using the product, it's actually really hard to upsell. Or uh, if you could actually get some insights into what products, like e-commerce products, are performing the best with this one person of like age seventeen to twenty-one girls in in this state or like that have previously bought that, that many products like that, like who wouldn't take that optimization. Right. So it's more so like a lot of incremental moderate gains that you're missing out on. And then generally the fact your team is confused on what's happening. There's no scoreboard. It's probably not great for morale if you like can't really measure or like point to like results. Uh, and it makes them harder for, do, for them to do their jobs because you can pressure your CMO to like deliver results or your head of growth to deliver results. But if they don't know where, the marketing leads are coming from or from what segment uh it's it's so hard uh and so they're kind of running in the dark and maybe they'll throw money at it but it, it's just like one of those things that has been put off because it's moderate gains and it's really hard to set up um which is why we're sort of looking at like how do you decrease the setup barrier but the, the truth is is that it's just a lot of moderate gains over a long period of time but it does impact your core team members and how jo- how well they can do their job Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think those things often get overlooked with kind of like short-term thinking, right? Where it's like, we need just to hit this, this, this revenue number. It's not about tomorrow. It's about today. Right. Um, I think that type yeah. of thinking can often kind of lead to those types of scenarios that we we're talking about. Um, one thing I would love to kind of pick your brain on is with being like a growth oriented data company, how are you seeing kind of the changes when it comes to like the potential for like deprecation of cookies, you know, all of the iOS kind of changes and all of these things that have made it a lot harder to attribute, right? To actually see where that lead came from. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the call we've made is to sort of avoid all of that. And it's more so mm. like you're, as a marketer, you're going to pick the best attribution tool because you probably know best in that domain. And those tools are going to catch up and hopefully they're going to find a solution. Um and then we'll plug into whatever you've already bought and make it easy to use, almost or actually yeah. usable. Uh, but other companies like Triple Will, for example, I think they had to build some in-house snippet thing to track where I think I'm probably butchering this, but uh, to track where I think like purchases are coming from or how people found them. Um, but that's also maybe because they had sort of already built out a core product and that was like a missing piece their customers kept asking for. So it could make sense down the line, but um, I don't, since we don't have an industry focus, it's mm-hmm. uh, maybe not super in scope right now, but, but definitely a lot of interesting developments on that front. No, it makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. 
Um, so we're, we're getting somewhat close to time, but I, I did want to ask, uh, how your experience in early stage investing, like actually motivated you and kind of informed the path that you took to investment and, and to kind of starting your company? Yeah, it's a great question. So first again, like I think nothing, nothing about, nothing stops anybody from being a founder and that it's not like mm. these people are very superhuman. You could get to a series B and C and still plummet. Right. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's just like whoever like wants to be like, you can, you can make it happen. There was no like one form of person or anything mm. super magical about the people. Obviously they're like incredible humans and stuff, but still not like 10 X more awesome than any, like anybody else who isn't a founder. Um, I think second is that fundraising, Maybe it's a bit of a jaded view on fundraising, but I think it's like the easiest part of mm. uh, building a company almost, uh, which is it's so much easier for people to raise money than to find true product market fit and build a product mm. people really like. Uh, and so is it necessary? Maybe if you like, you know, your product is engineering heavy or you just like right. don't have the means to bootstrap or, or something like that. But uh, I think investors ability to help you out is maybe a bit overstated and that like you're still mm. going to have to drive 99.5% of it uh and fundraising becomes really easy once you have some semblance of PMF or even like you show some hints of getting there uh and so if I were to give advice to myself from like a year ago I'd say maybe like don't go to any like networking events anything like only focus mm. on the product only focus on the customer everything else is noise uh, I wouldn't even like build any product before like any like real like validation, like seeing people excited on calls and that kind of thing. So, Interesting. yeah. Interesting. And you mentioned earlier that you, you, you sat down with a lot of growth leaders, right? Uh, I would imagine just a lot of people in general. Um, would you say that that's one of the core kind of need finding strategies that you've taken to discover like what to build? Yeah. I mean, we've read... I feel like everyone goes about it a different way. Like some people are like just launch product and other people... Mm -hmm will do like Figma famously took like well, a couple years to, to get through and just like moved to Japan and started like building it out. Um, so I think maybe like the point where we stopped having as many calls was when we stopped learning new information or at the very least, like mm -hmm. even though like calls that are quote unquote unhelpful as in like they don't get your product, that's helpful to know who it's not going to resonate with. So oh. just being able to narrow down who you target, it's super helpful. Uh, and the space we're in, I feel like traditionally has not been great for a lot of companies in terms of the most challenging part is selling. Um, so mm. I feel like always having like that feedback loop and, but there's always of course danger in that if they're not paying customers and, and listening to people, it's hard, but I feel like we've learned so, so much. And I recommend anybody to like go send out like 200 LinkedIn pings a week to, to really targeted people because uh, it's a good skill to have. And just like, it's like one of those things where it's like, getting like rejected online and like making mm -hmm. conversations in the elevator is all like a really helpful like muscle to practice to just like not have that much shame left uh, which is a great trait for, for most people yeah yeah i feel like founders and stand-up comedians both have kind of the uh the same arc right yeah the villain arc yeah, a little like, bit yeah yeah it's like well i go up on stage and everybody booed but you know i learned a lot and next time yeah. we're gonna do better exactly <laughs> Um, so last question, uh, for any potential founders, let's say even, you know, yourself before you knew that you wanted to go into founding a company, 
what would be the one kind of outstanding piece of advice that you would give regarding figuring out what that discipline is? Yeah. Um, I guess in terms of like, like discipline, like skill set or, or industry or something. Yeah, I would separate. say like industry kind of, you know, choosing to go into data versus any of the other kind of potential lanes that you could have taken. Yeah, um, I would just say probably start building in one form or another in whatever industries mm-hmm. you think you could be interested in. So if you think you're interested in fintech, like go work at like an incredible like Series B company that's growing really fast for like a year or two. Um, and see how they operate and see how they build because maybe you can productize something, you know, they didn't end up building or you'll also just meet a lot of people um, that are going to be really helpful. Um, but yeah, I think obviously the perfect way to do it is like, you know, you go into a couple industries you're into, you learn from a ton of people, you spin out, make a product. It's perfect from the get go. Uh, but for the most case, like that's not, that's not really how it works. Right. Um, so you probably have to pivot around, but I think for the most part, if you pivot in the same space and you're so interested in that space, like it, it'll be okay. And worst case, so many companies have done well just by launching something they built for themselves internally. Um, but, you know, one way or another, I feel like the best piece of advice I ever got was just like, if you refuse to die, you just like won't. Like there's always <laughs> another move to make. So whatever that looks like, like, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, all things considered, like it, you we're so lucky to be doing something like this. Right. And so in the grand scheme of things, like the world won't end, like you should just have fun with it probably and and do whatever like you think you should be doing and kind of ignore what everyone else thinks in terms of like, how old you have to be or what you have to do before then, because that's, that's not how the market receives products. Like if you can build something that you can be really proud of and people like, then that's all that really matters. Totally. And what was that quote real quick? Well, it was, if you refuse to die, you won't. Yeah. If you refuse to die, you just I won't. Love yeah. <laughs> so now you have me on a podcast saying, if I refuse to die, I won't. So if you see a shutdown post like two years from now, you can come back and shame me for it. Um, or maybe I won't. <laughs> I, I know I said that on this podcast. So <laughs> That's a commitment. Uh, that's legally binding. <laughs> you got me. No, that's... That's that's great uh, great advice, right? I, I think you're you're spot on. It's just about doing it and refusing to give up, right? Um, if you're able to build something useful, somebody will find it useful. Um, so I, I'd say that's that's great advice for anybody out there. Now, um, Christina, would you mind telling people where they can find you, follow you, where to you know follow what what uh, Q is up to? Yeah, definitely. Uh, our site is a little in stealth right now, but uh, it won't be for long. And you can find me on LinkedIn or I'm sure if you look hard enough, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, email too. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, Christina, thank you so much for, for the time. This has been a joy. Yeah, thank you. This is super, super fun. So thanks for having me on.